Hello and welcome to Grow Up, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and today on the show, we're catching up with Sarah Thompson, Julian Coulter, Fanny Chabot, and Helen Androlia to talk about imposter syndrome. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Tank for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading agencies and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. This is a conversation that I have been waiting for for a while. Um, there's been a lot of teas uh, going up uh, towards it because it just seems to be a topic that seems to come up over and over again. Um, so I'd love it uh, if each of you could please introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, where you work, etc. Um, and then we'll just dive into it. So let's start with maybe Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Sarah Thompson. I'm Chief Strategy Officer at Mindshare. I have been every mad hatter and form of planner that you possibly can from media to brand. And uh, imposter syndrome has been, you know, that voice on my shoulder that has been with me throughout my entire career, um, plaguing me, making me chase perfection, um, making me be a procrastinator. It, it, it really is that thing that you really need to give a name and manage. So it's nice to be here. And I look forward to chatting with you guys about this topic. Terrific. Um, Helen, another uh, person maybe who, who uh, recognizes with imposter syndrome, as we all do. Yes, I, I'm, as you said, I'm Helen Andrelli. I'm a strategy director. I've worked across the integrated space and social, digital, all the spaces in between. Uh, I'm also an instructor over at Miami Ad School Toronto, where I teach pitch and presentation as well as developing insights. And uh, yeah, what can I say? It's, uh, I'm really excited to be here and I'm really excited to talk about all of my uh, shared insecurities. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Fanny. Fanny, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Of course. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. My name is Fanny Chabot. I'm co-founder and co-head of strategy at Folk, which is a brand consultancy based in Montreal. Um, and, you know, my story with imposter syndrome is pretty much a love story. Uh, actually, you might see imposter syndrome in action today. So um, I'm, I'm, I feel very comfortable talking about that today. So looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. It's a safe space. (laughs) (laughs) We're all massively insecure. (laughs) Julian, uh, tell us about uh, you and uh, your uh, imposter syndrome. Maybe you've overcome it. (laughs) I'm Julian Coulter. I'm VP Strategy at Click Health. I've worked uh, on the consumer side and in healthcare over my career on things like Apple, P&G, Kellogg's, Nestle, and then healthcare companies like Biohaven, Pfizer, uh, and AZ. Uh, imposter syndrome. I think as planners, um, it's something we, we all experience. And I think our unique perspective often comes from a bit of an outsider position. And I think it is often felt as a bit of a weakness, but is ultimately our strength. So I think it's something that we should feel comfortable with and, and kind of embrace. And I'm looking forward to chatting about it with everyone here. Well, that's actually the perfect tee up because I was going to ask, I mean, clearly you all are extremely accomplished in your career. So why do we all still have imposter syndrome? Does anyone want to kind of start to break away at that? 
Can I, can I just say that I think um, the minute you said that, I'm like extremely accomplished. I don't know about you folks, but I immediately was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess. Like, and I was just like, oh yeah, this is why we're here. This is exactly it. <laughs> In my head, I was like, there's no evidence for that. Prove that, Michelle. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That, that's really funny because there seemed to be no threshold of accomplishment that puts our imposter syndrome feeling to rest, right? It's, oh, and it's, it's worse the more accomplished you get. Like and, uh, the, the studies actually show that the more accomplished you are, the more of an imposter you feel. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, oh, I, hear, yeah. I remember recently hearing an interview with Adele where she talked about being nervous every time she's on stage. And I think that nervousness also helps you perform. We work in an industry that is constantly evolving and changing. So I think that automatically makes you feel a little uneasy when you're always going into new spaces. But I think what is probably drawn most of us to what we do is our innate curiosity and our desire to explore new things. And I think that tension about obviously being experienced and, and having a good handle on our craft, but feeling uncomfortable with the, the ideas and the new ground we're trying to break um, is a sweet spot. I also agree with Helen, like the studies do show to Julian's point as well. It's like you progress more in your career, you lose objectivity as well. And then you're supposed to have the foremost expert opinion at the table. And you're looking at the others around you going, are you about to find me out that I'm not as smart as you think that I am? And there's no evidence to that. There's It's an incorrect assessment. But it's also one of those voices in your head to what Julian was talking about. It's like you can't avoid it. It, it, can, be, it can be the thing that can make you great and show up at your you know, presentation to a client or in a conversation. It can also be the thing that keeps you from ever having that conversation because you shy away from it. Exactly. I think the thing we often talk about is you know, getting rid of imposter syndrome or, or overcome coming in or, you know, you have to make it stop. But I really believe that doubt is good. It's more than good. It's, it's, it's part of, it's intrinsic to our job. I'm convinced that we need that doubt, uh, to, to, to be successful or to, to be a good planner, if you will. We just need to channel our inner imposter, if you will. And I was asking questions, trying to find things or ways to do things differently, but that doesn't mean that we should doubt ourselves there's a difference to me between doubting myself and doubting doubting my ideas you know and i think we should it's a it's a thin line but i think that's the way we should be addressing the the imposter syndrome it's about not you it's your ideas and your ideas don't necessarily belong to you right but fanny wouldn't you agree that it's always also a point of comparison like the imposter syndrome is because we sit with our own idiosyncrasies of what's going on in our brain and therefore we can't we can only understand others who come across with polish and professionalism and, you know, in a way that they, they walk into the room, especially in the planner space. There's, there's people where you can look at our industry and go, wow, you carry yourself extraordinarily well. And I look like the schlump over here in the corner. Um, that's also a really big point of it. And, and I'm always recognized too. Maya Angelou is one of those people that every single time she wrote a book, she always spoke about imposter syndrome. She never thought she was successful because she always thought that there were other better writers. And I think that's also, there has to be someone smarter and better at this than I am. 
Um, which to your point, Fanny, is also the reason why it drives us. I also think when strategy is, is done really well, there's a simplicity to it, which can leave you feeling, you know, uh, a little exposed. There's nothing to hide behind um, versus, you know, we've probably all seen uh, a version of planning that really works to complicate things and hides behind jargon. Um, and I think that that can give a false confidence, but planning at its at its best um, can look very simple. But we all know it, it takes a, a lot to get to that very, you know, simple, seemingly obvious idea that no one's come across before. Well, and I think I think Julian, like just to to yes, Angie, well, I think like when we look at all the the comments together, it's like first. Like with Adele, I can only imagine that the very first part of her career where it's all about, please like me, please like how I sing, please, I, I want to win you over. And then there comes a tipping point where it becomes about, I want to fulfill on your expectations, right? I want you to, you know, you've paid hundreds of dollars to come and see me perform. And now I want to make sure that I deliver on that. And I think we have this tendency, especially at the early stages of our career, we're so focused on on proving that we understand and demonstrating that we know and that we can do the work. And then there comes a point where, you know, to to add what you know, Sarah and Fanny were talking about, this notion of I walk now into a room and there's this expectation that I'm supposed to be the smartest person in the room, right? Rather than saying, I'm the person who asks the annoying questions, or I'm the person who listens for the things that are going unsaid. There comes a point where, you know, you walk in and people look at you and you're expected to have this answer that's going to blow everyone's mind. And you're like, well, that's not for at least another three weeks. Um, so I'm sorry to let you down. And also maybe I should have brushed my hair to Sarah's point. Um, you know, we, we, we come to a point where you want to deliver on people's expectations. And that's where I think a lot of the insecurity comes from because we know how complex the work actually can be and that it's not as simple as it sometimes seems. I think, I think that's, you know, to bring it all together. <laughs> I, I agree so much, especially knowing that you have to present your strategy or your, you know, perspective to, uh, you know, C-suite or <laughs> opinionated creative director, you know, so you have to have that, that base of confidence, whereas sometimes you, you're not even convinced yourself that it's perfect because there's no perfection. So there's always a way, you know, there's many truths possible. There's many strategies possible. I, I only have one. And that's probably... Where I'm, I'm, where I'm going is that's probably my way of, of, of dealing with an imposter syndrome after almost 20 years of doing my job is humility. I don't know it all and it's okay. I, you know, my strategy is not perfect, but it's okay. I've worked, you know, my, I've done my job properly. Now I'm totally open to discuss it, but it's harder when you start in the business and you're supposed to have, you're supposed to be knowing everything on something and that's impossible. So you well, always feel that. Right. Yeah. Especially with experience. A lot of our job stems from experience of trial and failure. But to pick up on, on something Fanny said, I think part of it is that there's no one right answer in what we do. Um, there's options and you can make a best case. Um, but ultimately, you know, there's some faith and everyone needs to hold hands and, and believe that this is a good way forward. And I think the fact that there are, potentially other ways forward always leaves you sort of questioning. 
So I, I wanted to go back to something that Fanny said earlier, and it was about this idea that imposter syndrome isn't wholly bad, that there's a lot of conversation about getting rid of it and overcoming it. Um, but it sounds like sometimes it can actually be good. But obviously, there's a bit of a balance there. And I thought you gave some really good tips in terms of thinking about um, you know, not criticizing yourself versus uh, criticize is a heavy word, but evaluating the idea um, as a, as opposed to you know maybe beating up upon yourself. What, do you guys have any other thoughts on if it's not wholly bad, then how do you keep it in check? How do you balance it? I don't know if it's about keeping it in check. I think it's about when you hit the tipping point that it's it's blinding you for success. And I'll give you my favorite, for instance. I'm an obsessive researcher. I will look at massive amounts of data, research studies, anything I can get my fingertips on, ethnography, all of that, on every project, every single time. If I don't know something, I will look at it in a thousand different angles. Now, that's all well and good, but timelines don't allow you to go and become an academic on every single topic, every single time for every client project. It's just not available to you. So you have to know that in that pursuit of making sure that you are the most informed on this topic, driven by that imposter syndrome, lack of confidence, that there's a tipping point to which now you're just gone down a rabbit hole. You're you're burning daylight hours and you probably had the answer, you know, a day and a half ago that you should have followed. And that's the part I think that comes with age and experience that you start to know, oh, I'm I've gone too far down this hole and I need to actually just tidy it up and get to it because there is no perfect answer out of it. There's just the most well-informed answer I can come up with right now. I think one way to help defend against it is often as planners, we're a bit of an island. Um, and there's a sense that what we come up with is is either 100% right or 100% wrong. You know, if you think about a creative team, they come back with a whole bunch of ideas. You know, it's not just one ad. Um, so I think being able and, and feeling comfortable collaborating, um, getting different opinions and elevating your ideas and sometimes just talking someone through them, hearing yourself speak it out loud, you're able to edit and and play with things a little bit uh, and realize that that ideas are usually an evolution and they take a bit of polishing. Well, it's easy to say now for us, right? But I I placed myself 20 years ago when I started and I wasn't so at peace with it. Uh, it, It's, it's the thing is that's right. You're absolutely right, Julian. It's, you have to come up with a strategy um, and it's easy to undermine it. You know, you have one number wrong or you have one perspective or one, have a, haven't done such a kind of research, you know, whereas in creative or ideas, it's it's all relative. Um, but the thing is, I really believe that the imposter syndrome made me better at my job. It made me want to make sure that I was covering every every angle so that I could argue with people. But it's 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 you have to draw a line between, you know, I don't know it all and I must, you know, I must admit that I don't know it all, but I'm open and, and but I know what I've done and I'm confident in my strategy. You know, they, they, I really like Adam Grant and he, he said it very well. It takes confident humility to admit that we're in a work of progress. And I think that's how I am dealing with the imposter syndrome, even after 20 years of, of, of work experience. Yeah. 
I think, I think to add to what Fanny is saying too, I know for me, I, I probably come from a little bit of a, uh, an exceptional starting place because when I started in strategy, I actually started as a social media strategist and, um, I started in, in the early days of social media, uh, around 2011 before I moved into, into agency life. And I think because I was working in a discipline where, we really were just sort of making it up as we went along. And it wasn't, it wasn't, there was, there was no one else doing it. And so we had to do a lot of testing and learning. We had to have a lot of, of courage and conviction and that our understanding of the space as users, as long time, well, let's be honest here, like professional nerds that we could work in this agency structure and bring these creative ideas to life in a platform that nobody really quite understood. And, and so I remember I used to joke about it all the time where people would be like, well, how do I know this is going to work? And I'd be like, well, I don't, I don't know because we're, we're paving the road as we're driving on it. Right. Like I may not be the smartest person, um, but I'm the best you've got right now. And I'm going to help us navigate us through this space. And I think that because I started in a space of having to be in that spirit of learning and experimentation, because there wasn't really anyone else doing it at the time except for myself and a handful of other people. I think that we, that, that sense of sort of just try it and see how it goes really became part of how I work. But I know for me, one of the biggest challenges is the, the other side of that particular coin, right? Is that I felt like I always had to work harder than others to prove that I did deserve a seat at the table, that I absolutely was qualified to do the work. And I had to feel like there was a lot of struggle to, to show the value of what I was doing and how I was growing as a strategist. And so I think it's always that sort of push and pull a tug of war where I, I know that I know that I can't be perfect on the first go. I know that testing and learning is a huge part of what we do because that's how I built my career. Um, and I know that there will always be that little part of me in the back of my head. That's like, you stumbled into this. Other people trained for this. They've spent, you know, 20, 30 years refining their craft and you just happen to be at the right place at the right time, the right discipline and have kind of lucked your way up. And I think that on the one hand, it can be an absolute monkey in my back. But on the other hand, it also, to to add to what Fanny was saying, it, it pushes me to go harder, to keep asking more questions, to continually refine. I don't, it can be really hard on me sometimes. I, I know that I, I suffer from it sometimes hard, but I also think it pushes me to go further. Um, and to to not settle. Well, did, well. Did, did most people on this call start in in planning? I know I didn't. And in Canada, um, you know, way back then, it was very hard to start in planning. There was no real junior job, so I think that brought a a roundedness, and we found our way here often because we we had a a skill or an inclination. Um, to it and, and had found ways to express that in, in different roles, perhaps? I would, I would just say, yes. I started my career in public relations in an environment that was incredibly corporate where you had a dress code. Um, people always looked more polished than I ever felt like I could ever be. Um, I moved into a big consulting firm that also everybody felt like much more accomplished, more successful, and then navigated some different moves throughout my career. And one of the things that I think we haven't spoken about is like imposter syndrome 
in the component of our environments. Um, over a 20 year career that I've had, I've seen agency and corporate life evolve quite a bit because we used to talk about fit. Now we're talking about how do we have diversity and inclusion and more diverse minds at the table. Um, I think my imposter syndrome when I was younger was bad also because of the environments that we were creating for young people to be working in um, because there was sort of a certain standard that was put in place. So that piece of like Fanny talks about it. Yes, it drives me. Yes, it does all of those things. But I also have to keep it in check of, I do belong. Um, I do have a place at this table and, you know, 22 year old Sarah um, is not at the table anymore. And I can wear, you know, whatever the heck I want and not have to conform to what was even on my side of being part of the LGBTQ community, you know, a heteronormative lifestyle where that that's additive, like a woman and part of a community where you couldn't talk about it, your imposter syndrome is that much more exasperated. And I would love if you guys could talk maybe a little bit of like the environments that you've had to navigate to address your imposter syndrome, even more so than the job, because that part has also made us who we all are. My God, I can't relate. Well, no, I, I can't. But I relate in my own way to what you're saying, Sarah, so much. I mean, I'm, I'm an ex and I don't want to play the, the generations stereotypes there, but there's a difference. You know, when I started, it wasn't easy. I had to deal with the boys club and I started in Europe. You know, I, that's where I studied. That's where I, I started my career in advertising agency. So it was really, it was a boys club, you know, um, and the environment was toxic to a certain extent. And when I came back to Canada, started to work at other agencies in, in Canada, it, we were still in that old state of mind of, you know, you have to prove it to make it to the top. And you couldn't really afford vulnerability or being who you are, really, you know. And I'm so glad I was talking to the, uh, about that with my, with my associates today and we're saying, I'm so, I'm so happy that the new generation has changed everything and that it allows for diversity in the thinking as well as in the, uh, as in the, the individualities, if you will. Because before it was all, it was more blended, if you will. So it, it made it even harder for us or even stronger for us to fit in. Uh, whereas we, we didn't fit so much, right? Yeah, fit was a fit really was a driver for a lot of my imposter syndrome of I don't feel like I belong. Um, so therefore I need to work a thousand times harder to prove that I belong at this table. That that's a that's something you gotta pay attention to. I also wonder if it's just inherent in the job too. You know, I said I think a lot of planners our ability to to spot insight and understand human behavior and pattern recognition maybe sometimes comes from a bit of an outsider status. If you think of others like comedians, right? Like when they do their jobs incredibly well, it's, it's often they have this sort of history and perspective that's a little bit different because they've been on the outside. And I think that can naturally make you feel, you know, a little uneasy, but it's ultimately embracing that that can be our real strength in the perspective that we provide. That, that's actually interesting. I mean, obviously, curiosity is a massive uh, trait uh, that a lot of strategists will uh, relate to. And a lot of what we do sometimes, I think, is in, in a gentle way, 
provocation or continually asking why, why are things that way? Why can't they be this way? Can you talk a bit more about like that outsider, you know, even the ability to see these patterns, these observations to recognize insights, um, is that related perhaps to this, this state of curiosity? I think it might be related more so to innately when you're managing sort of your imposter syndrome voice in your head, you land in a place of of some hopefully objectivity to it, which is we are all very deeply flawed, which then when you're looking at something, you're not looking for the perfect answer as well. Like that that part of the of the other that Julian was talking about, the outsider look, it means that you're looking for as much as like the mainstream, you're looking for the anomalies, you're looking at the the fringe, you're looking at the what's next. Um, because you realize that all human beings are deeply flawed, <laughs> that we all have some sort of neuroses that we are all managed. Like everybody uses the bathroom. Um, so even the queen does. So you have to kind of start to land yourself in a space where you're, you, you see other, but you try to find an inner relationship to it and be curious and want to dig into it because it's interesting and not that you're looking for normative. You're not looking for the, the, the sameness. I think it also is a big part of why imposter syndrome can be valuable. Yeah, there's a couple of big concepts that we've talked about so far, uh, the pursuit of perfection and the acceptance of failure. And I actually, Helen, remember distinctly coming across your LinkedIn profile where you called yourself out as a recovering perfectionist. And I immediately related to that. I was like, I need to talk to her. <laughs> I understand her. Um, how do perfection and failure come into this conversation? Oh, it's, I think, well, Early in the conversation, we talked about, you know, perfection not being real. And I mean, because we're not on video, I was have snaps off, <laughs> off screen to myself. Um, I think for me, there's a lot of, of moments where we lean on perfection and we talk about perfectionism a lot as, as a humble brag. And this is something I find really interesting. It's like, what's your biggest flaw? And people are like, well, I'm just kind of a perfectionist. And it's like, well, <laughs> yes. Uh, but often perfectionism is a form of anxiety and procrastination, right? Because in our head, we see this thing that's flawless. That's so amazing that we're going to walk into a room and say, okay, folks, here's the, the single minded proposition. Here's the, the insight. And that all the creatives are going to go, Ooh, and they're going to clutch their chest and start taking notes feverishly and, and you know, the, I don't know, confetti cannon rains from the sky and, and, the, and everyone rejoices. I don't know. Um, but I know for me, um, and, and just to, to add a little bit on what I was saying before, it's like I got a later in life diagnosis of ADHD, which I was always very certain I had, but I also got a diagnosis of a uh, generalized anxiety disorder and a uh, spectrum disorder. And I think for me, it was this really interesting sort of shift in how I saw things because all of a sudden I realized, one, this is partly why I feel like that little bit of an outsider uh, that Julie was talking about, that observer, that person who, who sees the way things are and kind of goes, why is it like that? That doesn't make any sense to me. I need to question it. I need to investigate that more. But that also that perfectionism became a coping mechanism for me, right? That I... I would try and make it as perfect as possible. I would try to make it so that the feedback would be as minimal as possible. And so that if I missed something or I felt like I didn't, 
you know, nail the thing, that everything else would be so good that it wouldn't be a, a mark against me. And it took me a lot of work to realize that, you know, one, like perfection is an illusion. It's just this thing that we create. And when we hold ourselves up to this measure of perfection, we use it as an excuse not to get things done, right? The done is better than perfect. But that also that expectation of, of what that perfectionism will deliver is, is a false narrative that's never going to happen. And all that ends up creating is that insecurity and that dissatisfaction with the work that you're actually doing. So I, I've just worked really hard on noticing like one, I, I can't be perfect and none of us can be no matter how hard we try. Um, and even if I was perfect, it's not as if anyone's going to recognize the difference between my not quite perfect and my perfect, but me. Right. So I have to find that satisfaction in myself and I have to meet the deadline instead. Yeah, there we go. That's the very short thing. That is better than perfect. Do you find like uh, things like cognitive behavioral therapy and those kinds of things applied to imposter syndrome can help? Because to me, I look at it as like I have this thought and is this thought actually true or is there any evidence against it that that plays into it. And so we, you, the vos, the vacillating between procrastination and perfection, absolutely. But there's also something to be saved for like the written form of getting your objectivity back about yourself. Yeah. I, I found it to be tremendously helpful. Um, and not just that it's also helpful in, in the process of discernment and editing too. It's that idea of, where does this stay? What, what stays, what goes? And, and that notion of like, well, what serves us, right? Does this thought serve me right now? Not only is it not objectively true or untrue, but also is this helping me right now or is it hindering me? And why would I want to allow myself on a train of thought that's going to hold me back rather than push me forward because I want to get out of this place. And I think that it also, yeah, it absolutely helps when I'm going through the work to say like, what does this actually help? Like what, what is the point that we're trying to make here? Is this actually moving us towards it or is it just adding more layers of obfuscation and information that I could easily just discard? It's, um, it's interesting. On the one hand, CBT can be very frustrating. It's like, have you tried not thinking like that? I'm like, I I am, (laughs) I'm trying. Um, thank you. But I think it's also, once you get into the mindset of it, it, it can be enormously helpful in ways that you wouldn't even expect. I couldn't agree more. Actually, I think I think it, it, it these frame these schemes actually prevents you from move, moving ahead and be your you know your best self because you're so terrified of even being you know it's just this it, your frame of thought for when you when you fail well it's because of you because you were not up to the challenge and when you win well you you got lucky and this is the kind of frame of thought that you have to 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 switch and you have to choose the thoughts that are actually helping you moving forward. And that's a conscious choice. So I I couldn't agree more with you, Ellen. You know, what's interesting about this though, too, is compliments. Somebody the other day paid me a compliment. Um, I spoke at something and then they said like, you did a great job or something like that. And before I used to be like, thank you and try to quickly change the subject. Now I go, I'm, I, I am taking that in and I am going to process it. And I'm sure the other person's like, what's wrong with this woman? <laughs> but I'm going to take it in. I'm going to process it and I'm going to find a means to accept it. And, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying. Um, but compliments is such a weird spot for me. To build on the idea of perfectionism. I, I was just going to say, um, I think sometimes we feel a pressure 
to be the one that comes up with the answer. And I, 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 there is no perfect answer, you know, and I think we have to be able to give ourselves the freedom to play with different options um, and see that there, there might be one best option, but nothing's ever going to be perfect. And then our own point of view and passion for what we think is the best way forward, um, you know, can, can help rally people around that. But it's, it's going to be hard to just, you know, crack something and expect it to be perfect without some inputs from others or, you know, adding to that or, or seeing where it might go along the way. Yeah, but I'd like to go back to that because I, you know, and going back to what Sarah just said, I don't, I don't think it will come from the outside since it's, you know, it's a deep sense of insecurity. It's caused by our, the voice of our inner critic and my, in my inner critic voice is very strong. <laughs> you will not overload it, you know, and because of that, no evidence or no compliment will help us truly change or evolve or channel. I like to say channel or uh, this, this imposter syndrome that I have. So it's really much, that's why I really appreciated the question about behavioral therapy. I think it's really much about framing our, our, our thought in a way that will help us uh, evolve. Well, and, and if I can add to that, Fanny, too, one of the things that really helped me a lot and, and so bear with me for a moment is when I started teaching, one of the things that I was really surprised by was seeing a group of individuals receive the same brief and then seeing side by side, comparatively, the very different responses to them. Because I think in our usual day-to-day professional lives, we don't have opportunities like that. When we're in a pitch, we work in isolation. We rarely see what the other agency's response was or what another strategist's response was. When we're working within our own work environments, we're either leading teams and guiding them towards the work, or we have one person who's working on one project or one aspect of a project. And so for a long time, I felt like there was a right answer, that there was a a yes or a check that I was trying to achieve. And it was only when I started seeing students receive the same brief, the same projects and seeing how differently all of them responded to it, how they all came with a different insight or a different process. They pulled different data sources. I started to realize there was no one way to answer the brief and therefore there was no right answer. And that when we do the work, we're trying to achieve this ideal, but the fact is we're bringing our experiences, our lens on the world, our, our way in which we interpret information and also how we approach resource, uh, research and how we discern what works and what doesn't. And those are highly individual. And when I started realizing that, it really freed me up to start thinking less about it as a goal I was trying to achieve and more as a process that I could have absolutely answered differently than somebody else. But to that point, they would have answered it completely differently than I would have. And neither are more right or more wrong. They're just different. That was a hugely freeing process for me because I don't think as strategists, we get to do that very often. Have you guys collected people as you've gone on your careers of sounding boards, no matter where they are in their lives? And to me, that kind of bridges the gap of what Julian was talking about and what we're talking about, which is there's an ability for us to sort of bounce ideas off of. And Helen, I've had a very similar experience after just going through Young Lions and judging that that awards. It's like what people did with the brief that I wrote for Young Lions this year was so interesting 
But part of it that I, I find too is there was a cross-pollination and a collaboration and the teams and how they worked that landed them in this place. And because of the isolation that we work in, we need to have sort of that community of minds of people that we can bounce ideas off of and see where it can go as much. And, and trusted spaces where our imposter syndrome, we can show up as our full selves, not with the idea that I don't I shouldn't even have this conversation because if I have this conversation, you're going to see my flaws uh, that or that I don't know everything. I think that's also something that we need to really cultivate. And is it would be my counsel to my younger self is like those people that have, you know, other points of view and other perspectives, but you can really cross pollinate and have a good collaboration with are, are hugely vital in my world of just I trust you and this is a safe space and I can sound, I can feel like I sound dumb, but together we'll like, we'll make something great. Sit down with creatives, you know, and, and bounce ideas off instead of just handing off a brief. Um, Because I think it, it builds that sense of collaboration and the way they look at something and the way you look at something, you're always going to get to a better place if you can bat it around a bit. Well, it's it's one of the reasons and it's one of the reasons why I initially I, I left the advertising world, you know, to, to create this brand consultancy studio where I was just doing brand strategy. And we we started it in duo. You know, we were two planners like a, like a duo of a creative, like a team of creative. Actually, I, I really think that strategy is not the result or the responsibility of one person. It should be the, the result of a collective a, a collective work because I don't think we have the power and the knowledge and the capability to come up with a great strategy alone. I really believe that this is... I'm the best of myself when I work in team. That's for sure. And that's part, probably one of the, the ways that I've took to address my imposter syndrome is you know, let's do it together. So it's going to be just greater. Someone mentioned the word, I uh, just want to backtrack a little bit, the word reframe earlier. And I know that this is a common concept uh, that comes up over and over again. I know where it comes from, but I'd like to talk about it a bit more. And that's this notion that the strategist is meant to be the smartest person in the room. Mm. How can we reframe that so it doesn't feel so incredibly uh, hard to try and achieve that? I mean, because we're other things as well. We're, we're curious. Someone mentioned humble. Are we brave? How do we how do we change that? That's such a good question. I think it starts with trying not to position yourself as the smartest person in, in the room and taking that pressure off. We've asked about, you know, like, what are some of our recommendations and tips? I think sometimes we feel a, a need to come up with the answer. And I think one of the best things you can provide is coming up with great questions. Um, you know, trying to ask why things are that way, why the category is operated, that why the client thinks that way. Um, and I think that gives you some freedom to then, you know, work as a broader group to help come up with that answer and not feel that you have to do it as, as that singular person. I think I really believe that thinking that being the smartest person in the, in the place is detrimental to our job. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I, I really believe that brand strategy and communication strategy is an expertise, something that you learn to do. 
and it's not being the brightest or the most intelligent person in the room. It has nothing to do with it. It's just the result of the work you're, you're learning and you're doing. So, and I, I try to frame it the best I could every time I, 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 I evolve with clients or, or creative agencies. Um, what we do is finding ways to achieve our objectives and to connect with people so that our, the, our clients, the brands we work with, have greater results. That's our job. It's not being the smartest person in the room. Um, if it's this, if it's this, I'm not. I'm not fit for the job. I wanted to go back to what Helen was talking about too, just about um, you know your background and and how you may have experienced school. And I think sometimes it's you know trying to embrace those things that maybe earlier in your life where we're seen as a detriment, maybe you talk too much in class or you daydream too much that I think often planners have a different perspective and it, and it often comes from just the way they think. And I know early in my career, I often just saw things as common sense. I was able to recognize patterns and, and come to a hypothesis on why people do what they do. And then it, it took me a long time to figure out that, what I thought was common sense wasn't. And in those things weren't always obvious to people. And sometimes these things that we thought had limited us actually can become our, our superpower. I, I couldn't agree more, Julian, because honestly, like um, speaking of unconventional backgrounds, like before I moved into social media, my, my beginning, actually my, my, my degree is in theater design and theater management. And Often people, especially at the beginning of my career, they would say, well, how do you reconcile that with what you're doing? And I was like, well, the theater is really just about an examination of what it is to be a person, right? Costume design is about assembling information from a script into creating a garment or an assembly of garments that will help an actor feel closer to that person. It's all just about understanding humanity. And I think that for me, that that outsider perspective has always helped me that the the education I brought from that has always helped me and I don't ever think that those things are are separate or different I think that it's just a different way of of understanding the world and I think you know I I think everybody in this call I know for me in particular I was definitely a daydreamer and a voracious reader and a very annoying asker of why um and that has never stopped right and I think that for me I I try to prize in my work that my main role is not again, not to be the smartest person in the room. I think, uh, you know, we were talking about like, this is a, a really detrimental narrative to have, especially because I think that when someone is positioned that way, even if it's not by their own choice, people want to be like, but I'm a smart. And I'm like, you absolutely are. I'm not the smartest person. In the room. I'm trying to find the smartest person in the room. And then I want to pick their brains and I want to take all that and assemble it into something that is going to be useful. Um, that's my job. But I do think that like, Sorry, I feel like I'm bouncing all over the place. I think my ADHD has absolutely helped me see connections that other people haven't. I think my experiences have brought this together. I think it's just about providing people with the courage to understand that we all get to the answer in a different way. And you know, it's, that's you know, a it's, race. You know, it's interesting to your to your point about sort of your background, which I love to hear. One of the things that I always wanted to be was a poet, which you don't make any money at doing that role. So you have a quick reality check. But the thing that I find really fascinating about 
that was always that it was a reflection on like society today. It's like taking everything that you observe and distilling it down into a very simple notion, which I think is what our job is. And everything that we've commented on is our love for the exploration of sort of the unknown. It's the, you know, the diving into something that you, you've never had. And we've tossed around words like brave and smart and all of those things, but there is, there is something in it that, that is, um, that is sort of dreamy about what, what our role actually manifests, um, in business. Cause I think there's a lot to be said for the explorers of us and the, the notion of that. And I, I really do wish I kept with the poetry and didn't let <laughs> capitalism crush my soul, but it's still there in how I, it's, it's still there in how I write a single most every once in a while. It feels like I could say, do it as haiku. <laughs> I, 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 my God, I, I see myself in your stories. Uh, so it's, it's really ex- like enriching, if you will. I was, Juliana was the one knowing, asking all the questions, you know? So I relate to that. I, the thing is that, though, I don't want to see ourselves or our job, you know, as, as an exceptional breed. It's just that we probably are interested in people and in things in general. And we've turned that into a way of living. Um, whether it's, you know, poetry, I love poetry, theater, I did theater actually helped me and I'm going everywhere myself. So theater actually helped me overcome imposter syndrome because when Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I, I I used to play theater and my, my teacher told me, uh, you know, when you put on your costume, you, you, you become the, 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 the character. And I've applied this in my day job, which is when I put my nail polish, I become a character. And I, you know, it gives me confidence and I'm, and, and I'm willing to put on a, on a show, you know? So it's really is about <laughs> observing people and trying to give a show, if you will. You mentioned that call- a kid, I was just going to say, like, I, I was the same and I always joke with my parents, you know, they used to always say, wow, you ask a lot of, a lot of questions. And I said, who, who thought you could turn that into a career? But I can't walk past a historical plaque and not stop and, and read it. Um, and I think curiosity is, is a, a huge driver, I think, in doing this job and doing it well, you know, trying to dig into new things, trying to find a new path. I think that's always going to leave you feeling like a little unsure. Um, but I, I think I remember working on a client early in my career where in their boardroom they had like, are you feeling confident about, you know, your campaign or idea? Well, then maybe it's not pushing things too far. And I think you need to feel a, a little bit of uneasiness if you're truly trying to, to do great things. It's funny how we're pivoting this into like all the greatness that may manifest in the minds of planners. Building off of the plaque thing, I obsess about plaques. I just realized I did it all on the weekend when I was in Niagara Falls. I was reading every plaque by every tree. So now I'm realizing we have common ground, Julian. So thank you. But the the other part is like problems. Like I cannot walk past a problem that I don't want to sit and noodle on for some time. Like, why is it like that? How could it be different? What What's the underlying reason? How did we get here? Like obsessing about problems and solving problems is such an important part of our role, which again, means that I'm not 
there's no possible way to be the smartest person in the room with that because every problem is unique unto itself and you have to look and dig and pull it apart, put it back together. Um, but that part of it, I realized also it was a great gift from my dad, who was an auto mechanic, who I sat and watched him when he worked on cars. And I would ask the question, why? And then I would, he would start pointing to the problems that were underpinning what he was trying to fix. And I'm like, let's keep going and let's keep going. And that part of the role, I think, is, is the positive part of, again, going back to what Fanny was talking about, is of imposter syndrome. It's like, there has to be more. There has to be digging. There has to be something else. But I think, I think what's so interesting is that like <laughs> nobody here on the call, the, this narrative of the strategist as being the smartest person in the room, we're not responsible for this. And I think that maybe one of the things that we could all do a little bit better is to actually challenge people in reverse on that. Is that why do they think that? And why do they think that exists? Because I, I've never viewed my role like that. And I don't think anyone here has either. And I feel like those are sometimes like, those are the narratives that we internalize and we make part of our own expectations or what we think people expect of us. And in turn, it just, it causes this, this terrible stew of uncertainty. And I mean, uncertainty is valuable to a degree, but you it's know. funny. I do keep spinning this back to the positive because I, I think we all can see we, we feel this sense, but I, I do think there's elements in it that are inherent with what we do, but also I think something we need to embrace. And I think that curiosity is a, is a big part of it. I also think just fresh eyes. At one point in my career, I went off to be uh, a moderator and a research consultant in healthcare, which I had never worked in. And it was, it was super intimidating to be sitting across from physicians who were key opinion leaders. And I didn't know anything about that. I didn't have a science background. And I had colleagues that did have those backgrounds and they would very much be able to mirror a physician. And, and I just used that curiosity and that asking questions to have a really human conversation. And at the end of it, physicians often, you know, I'd look for patterns and then often point out inconsistencies to, to try and dig insight. And at the end of uh, these interviews, a lot of the time doctors would say, you know, I've, I've done lots of focus groups and I've been a physician for 20 years and I never one thought about why I treat that patient group that way or this condition that way. Um, and I think sort of embracing this fresh eye place where we're not necessarily the expert can be a real benefit and gift to what we bring to it. Well, well, clearly this has been a very rich conversation. I have no doubt that we could go on for quite a while longer. Um, but, you know, we've covered a lot of things. We've talked about things like belonging, uh, vulnerability. We've talked about confidence and humility. These could all be, uh, you know, podcast episodes on their own. We've talked about collaboration and expertise. What is the one final parting tip uh, that you would give to uh, our listeners in terms of overcoming, or maybe it's not overcoming, uh, imposter syndrome? So um, let's put someone on the spot. Helen, let's start with you. (laughs) (laughs) 
I what are my... the voices in your head saying right now? <laughs> <laughs> they're, saying, they're saying, oh, you're going to get off this call and you're going to completely tear apart everything you said. So you can keep replaying it. Yes. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, I think what I would say is that the number one tip is that as a strategist, your task is not to be right universally. Your, your task is to instead bring us closer to what the right direction is. And so the full extent of your powers, your, your history, your background, the experiences that you've had, the way that you see the world, the way you take in that information, there is no wrong way to do it. It's just the way that you do it and that everyone else would do it differently and that the answer would be no more right on the other side. And I think that when you embrace the fact that, yes, embrace the fact that you're the one who's tasked with finding the solution. You weren't asked to find the right one, just a solution. And I think that when you put yourself in that place, it feels a lot better rather than trying to hit a goal or a mark. Oh, that's that's brave. So just just find the answer. It doesn't even have to be right. Well, because there is no right. I like that. Um, Fanny, what's your hot tip? <laughs> well, actually... There's a lot of imposters in this world. You know, 70% of us experience the syndrome of, uh, of insp- imp- insp- imposter. Sorry. So just try to find what imposter you are. I'm a perfectionist imposter. And try to, for instance, and try to find ways to channel. I like to use the channel. Channel your imposter so that it serves you in the right, you know, in the right moment, in the right time. It's not always bad to feel that to feel that emotionally, you know, fully intellectually feeling. It's not always bad. It makes you doubt, but channel it to make you go where you want to go. And also, I think what what I would like to say, and this is more on a personal note, no one should have more power to make you feel good about yourself than you. Even like, like in my case, your boss, when they give you your project, the stamp of approval. So you have the power to channel that imposter syndrome. And as Sarah said, you belong. Terrific. Uh, Sarah, on to Sarah. What's your top tip? I'm going to be a little more crass. Everybody poops. Everybody (laughs) has this problem. Everybody sits at the table. And the one thing that I would like to always say is like to anybody who's sitting at the table, who's young and starting out their career in this profession, your voice should be heard at that table as much as mine, as much as anybody who's been in this for the long run. So keep in mind that we all have this sort of demon or, or frenemy. I think we're landing in, in imposter syndrome as our frenemy that, that we all should just recognize that you, you can speak up, that you do matter and that no one should make you feel small or silenced, especially yourself to what Fanny was talking about. Everyone poops. I think we're going to have to rename this episode. Uh, Julian, Julian, bring us home. Um, I think this is sort of being said, and I'll just recap it, I guess. Like, don't put the pressure on yourself to feel that you have to come up with the answer or that there's a perfect answer. And I think um, asking smart questions, uh, letting your your curiosity flourish, um, going through those exercises can be great. And then you know, don't, don't feel you need to hard hide behind jargon and, and making things complicated. Let 
simplicity kind of rule and be your guide as much as you can. Awesome. Sorry, I'm distracted by the chat. <laughs> <laughs> That's two things, so sorry I wasn't single-minded. Now everybody's going to want to know what was in the chat during this podcast. <laughs> should, should I just say it? <laughs> no, I, I outcrossed Sarah. I was just saying my... Um, I had this realize when I learned the you know perfectionism is just another form of procrastination. Uh, my dad always used to say uh, procrastination is just like uh, having a wank. It feels good at the time, but in the end, you're just fucking yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is something that I I try not to think about, but it finds its way into my brain at really inopportune moments for sure. Like now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think anyone's been able to beat that comment. So we weaved wanking into this uh, episode. I think, I think we'll end it on that. <laughs> Thank you everyone so much uh, for joining this and uh, look forward to continuing this conversation because I know we have not finished with it. And thanks Thank for hosting, so Michelle. Yeah, thank Great. you very much. Thank thanks, you, everybody. everybody. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we'll be catching up with Andy McCauley, founding partner of MetaPurpose and chief growth officer at The Garden, on how to build an agency culture during a global pandemic. 